So what's going on podcast? Welcome back to another episode. If I'm honest with you, what you're about to hear is me probably at the most vulnerable that I've been in a long, 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 long time. Obviously, you probably know that I'm quite open with sharing the story, but this podcast interview that I delivered, a podcast with a guy called Henry. We met at an event a couple of months ago. We got talking and I jumped on his podcast and honestly, he asked some serious, serious questions that got me diving deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into everything that that happened. We speak about a lot, and if I'm honest, a lot of what you're about to hear, I've never shared before. So stick with it, and please let me know your thoughts. Hopefully, my honesty helps. If it does, please leave a rating and a review on this podcast. I'd help, I'd, it would help massively, and don't forget to reach out on social media. Let's dive in. Paul McGregor, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? I'm very well, my friend. How are you? Good, yeah. The sun's out, so you can't complain, right? I know. Have you been having like a bit of a beating with the with the weather lately? It's been what quite grey. Well, it's been quite grey. Yeah, this morning was this morning was cold, and then I was I went out for a run this morning, and then um, halfway through the sun came out, and then <laughs> I was wearing like a jacket, <laughs> <laughs> sweating. But yeah, no, it's I can't complain. It's nice out there now. Oh, so just a bit of sort of history. I met Paul at a speaking sort of seminar around mental health. I listened to his story. He got really vulnerable. He was very open. And it certainly struck me that you were doing a lot of work in increasing the awareness around mental health for a good reason. You know, and it came from a very personal, compelling place. Would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. About your journey. Yeah, so I always say my life was very carefree all the way up until about 18 um, from Essex. And um, just, yeah, it was, it was quite a straightforward 18 years. Um, I had a lot of insecurities growing up. I was always kind of the, the, the guy who was sporty, seemed quite confident. Um, but in, internally, I always told myself a different story. Like I never felt like that confident person. I did, looking back at it, maybe struggle a little bit of anxiety, but I didn't know what it was back then. Um, but the story that I always share is of my dad. And, and my dad was someone who I idolized. He was hardworking. He was a full-time engineer. Um, he had a part-time physiotherapy business that he set up and he used to run that from home. And um, he went to adult college and he studied psychology. He used to do a lot of meditation and Reiki and um, was, a, was, a, was a really keen runner and athlete as well. So, you know, never really showed any signs of, you know, sadness or depression. But um, one day just everything changed. Everything kind of came crashing down and his behaviors changed. Um, he was showing real signs of depression, sadness and, and lacking any hope. And we just had no clue what it was, like no clue what it was. But um, essentially, he went to the doctors, got some antidepressants, um, went back a couple of days later, got some more because, you know, that's what he was given. And a couple of days later, he called an ambulance, got told that he or told them he was feeling suicidal. Um, they took him to a &E. They left him in a &E, and he then left and attempted suicide um so as you can kind of imagine this was sort of a week yeah about a week after that that breakdown and it was just a massive shock to us all yeah but he came around from that from that attempt and denied that it was suicide because he blamed it on the medication we we accepted that as well because you know he never really took any medication and 
suicidal um, thoughts is one of the side effects of antidepressants. And essentially when he came home, the nightmare was over, everything went back to normal. But, you know, a couple of days later it, it got worse and he set, he ended up sectioning himself in a local mental health unit. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly, but he spent a couple of months in there and then, you know, before that he was in there, out of there, in there, out of there. And then he eventually was in there for a couple of months. Um, and that was our, our first word exposure to, to mental illness. You know, he was spending time in there with people that had schizophrenia and people that had bipolar and borderline personality disorder and, and all of these illnesses that, you know, I was never exposed to growing up as I was. And also my dad was never exposed to. Mm. Um, and he was just kind of, you know, he, he was, he was no trouble in there. He kept himself to himself. He just, he they did crosswords and kind of just was, was an easy patient. And when he was released, everything seemed to be um, better. He seemed to be coping more. Um, he essentially came and watched me play football once. And it was an amazing feeling to have my dad on the sideline again. But um, again, it got worse. And he spent two days in the mental health unit, got released on the Monday. And I saw him on the Monday night, didn't know what to do anymore. Just felt that everything would go back to normal again, or Dad would just find some little bit of strength to, to you know, go back to the to the unit tomorrow or something along those lines. <clears throat> and um, he didn't. He took his life um, that next day. So, yeah, it was a horrible, horrible experience. That six months, it was a six month battle. That was a horrible experience. But then, as you can imagine, and we'll talk about it more, the grief that followed after that was wasn't nice. Yeah. I can really feel that. And I, I felt the same when I heard you speak that a moment, it's almost like that moment when our parents become breakable, you know, infallible. And that can be traumatic for a child to experience. But then to follow on from that, you kind of see your father really struggling. Like, what was it like to see him as a, as a fallible human? Great question. Um, it was hard. It was really hard. And I've always been like, I've always been someone that wants to help. Um, so my mum's had, you know, if, you know, my mum and my dad, both of them, you know, whenever they're, whenever they've seemed to be struggling, I've always wanted to like help them. But I, um, you almost feel very, not worthless sometimes, but I think it's very hard to get through to your parents, you know, and I'm a parent now, so I can completely understand it now because I think, you know, it's, you feel like you have to protect them. You have to be the role model to them. You have to, you know, do all you can for your children. So I think when your children are trying to help you, it can sometimes be quite difficult. Um, but yeah, it was difficult because again, it's, you know, there was a lot of questions and after we lost him of like, was, was my whole relationship with my dad a complete lie? Because it's like you know, seeing him who he was to them breaking and, and, you know, going through what he had to. And as you said, really, really struggling and then taking his own life. Um, I did, I did question, you know, was he ever happy? Was he ever, you know, was he ever happy when we went on holiday together and spent time together? So yeah, it was, it was a very difficult period of, of seeing him like that. And this, these questions, you know, I think none of, I've only known sort of one or two people who committed suicide and that's been from, from a distance, you know, I've, I'm lucky enough never to experience what you've experienced those something that always haunts me about thinking about it is exactly what you've just said is the was he was it a lie how can i possibly know and 
we're just going to go really deep here, I guess. How do you answer those questions? Someone who's experienced the same and they've got these, these, these questions going through, which they've, they're not going to have the person to speak to. I, th I think for me, again, everyone's different, but for me, the day that I, and it was a long, long time to get there, but the day that I accepted that I'll never know exactly why was mm. the day forward because that question of why was just eating me alive it was honestly just just tearing tearing me apart because i just did not know why like why did he do it and um as you say those questions of why and how and all of these kind of cross your mind and just as well like you know how the how like how can someone do that you know how the way my dad did it as well, and you know, we won't go into details. It's 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 painful. It's physically painful, and it's you know, and also as well, it's physically painful. But my dad was such a people pleaser. My dad never wanted to annoy anyone, and and um, you know, he, there was other people involved with with his suicide, and the fact of you know, it was an accident, and um, you know, a road accident, and it's you know, trying to, we, as a family, you're trying to figure out like, you know, what kind of headspace is, is he in at that time? Because that's just completely out of character. You know, my just, my, he would never do that. And um, yeah, the why, the why just eats you alive because you're almost trying to relive it and you're almost trying to get to the headspace that he's in. And I found myself trying to do that on, on many occasions and um, falling into, I'd say probably depression myself and never really acting on suicidal thoughts, but you know, them crossing my mind and, and having to deal with them. And um, yeah, it, it just, it just eats you alive. The questions, like you say, the unanswered questions, but I think those, those questions of why you will never actually be a hundred percent able to answer because only he, knows how he was feeling in that moment thank you i mean it's a difficult question to answer and i'm going to ask something else which may also be slightly difficult but um you mean i'm, I'm i don't want you to share the, the the details of how he of how he died to put down that boundary um but it's that it's the violence of suicide you know mm. and the darkness of suicide and what i hear you saying is that you you try to put yourself into that darkness, into that, and, and you got the, the violence of it in contrast with the man who was a people pleaser. You know, he's yeah. like a beautiful guy. Yeah. That separation. It's a tough one because it's like, you know, it's, and, and I remember explaining it once. I think I did a video on it. It's like the physical pain that my dad endured is unbearable. But obviously, the mental pain that he was suffering with is even more unbearable. Mm. You know, for him to, feel like it again i never know the headspace is in and i don't think we'll ever know the headspace someone is in when they do take their lives but i think my dad probably knew how painful it was about to be the reason why i never mentioned how he died and, and there's there's you know if, if in my book i mention it etc it's, it's purely because um of it can be quite triggering to people when they actually hear of um methods um but yeah, like you say, there's, there's a huge, especially men in particular, you know, the statistics prove, um, research proves that women um, are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are, I believe, three or four times more likely to die by suicide. Mm. A lot of that comes with, as you say, the violence behind it, the, the, the methods that they use, the more, um, you know, guaranteed way of, I suppose, um, taking their life. But yeah, it's, it's, it's never, it's never pretty. Um, and, and then, and then just, you know, as we're talking about it, I don't mind sharing. It's, it's the, 
it's the after the after stuff so you know my dad my dad's first attempt was very very similar mm. so i remember we went in to see him um in the hospital and he was on a life support machine tubes everywhere and had a um blood um clot on his brain and mm. the we were told there and then, you know, say goodbye to him. He was about to be transferred to another hospital where they had a, a brain um, surgeon who was, who was going to do this operation. But essentially, in, in the nicest way as possible, she said, you know, say goodbye. Um, but he, he miraculously, as I say, survived that accident and came around from a coma, etc. Um, but we had to experience, you know, the shaved head, the scar, the everything that came from that ex- from that accident, and it was always a a constant reminder of of maybe for him what he'd attempted, and for us, you know, what had happened. Mm. And after his suicide, you know, because we never got to see him, um, my brother and my granddad went to identify him. I didn't want to do it because, um, and me and my mum didn't want to do it because we were the ones who saw him the first time. Um, they went to identify him. Actually, sorry, no, my mum my mum did go and identify him with my brother. Um, and then in the um when we were arranging the funeral, I don't know what they call it, when you actually can go see them in the chapel arrest. Yeah, yeah. Um, um obviously they 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 put a bit of makeup on my dad and they we we gave them some clothes that we wore. He always wore these long beige shorts and that's all he ever wore, and he never wore <laughs> pants. never wore pants underneath. <laughs> never wore a pant underneath them um, and always wore like a running t-shirt or something like that and we, we, we gave them to them and they dressed him in it and um, we went to see him in the chapel of rest and it was, it was, it was, it was horrible like just yeah. because, because the, the injuries that he sustained like he looked okay but you could tell that they'd covered some bits up yeah. and it wasn't brutal but just yeah there was some little details and because he was wearing the clothes and I looked at him and I was just like that's not my dad like that's yeah. not my and I just had I just had to leave. I put a letter in in his coffin, and then I left. Mm. And that was I always it. I always wonder. Like I, I I think about you know when my parents die or whenever and anyone they die, will I go and see them in while they're in the coffin? And it's always this thing of like I want desperately to connect to them mm. you know, in, in whatever way, be it by image. I desperately want to, but how does it transpire when we're presented with a body that is without life and the way you describe it, it sounds deeply upsetting for you. Yeah, it is. And, and then we lost my, we lost my nan a month after. So my dad's mum, um, and we did the same with her. It was the same place. And instead she just wore, like they just put her in like a, a gown and it sounds again, I think because my nan maybe died naturally, she died from cancer, but she died, um, you know, as an, an older age, and she wore this white gown. Like she looked like an angel. Like she just wow. looked peaceful and like at rest. Yeah. Whereas with my dad, it just it just wasn't a nice experience. And um, not that I regret it, because I wanted to, as you say, see him one more time. And I wanted to give him. Like, I wanted to like put a letter in, and my brother put a um, photo of them together in, and my mum wanted to see him. But all of us walked out of there about f- f- about three, four, five minutes after. Really? I mean, crying like it just was it just wasn't a nice experience um and yeah and i think again that's that's the thing with suicide it's it's you know it's it's having to deal with all of that after someone does take their life um yeah how was i will i i want to shift away from this just to because it's a it's a deeply upsetting thing you know just but just to stay in that space for a while 
you say that your you and your, your was it and and your mother left the chapel sort of within the same time and how was it sort of in those immediate moments after the funeral after that experience did you what was it important to you to experience a closeness with your family yeah it's a good question like me and my mum um and my brother as well were always we were always close um what I found very difficult was at that moment like after the funeral, because when it first happened, um, you know, I, I told one friend and I said to my one best friend, look, can you just tell everyone else? Mm. And then floods of support comes in, which is obviously expected and it's amazing. And then it's almost like you're running on autopilot. Literally. It's like you, it just, it seems like a nightmare. Like it seems like it's not happening. You seem like you're just going to wake up and it's all going to go back to normal. Yeah. Um, life carries on normal as well. Like me and my brother, um, go and get food, um, you know, from the fish and chip shop about four hours after you've mm. been dad's taken his own life. Um, the next morning, me and mum are walking the dock, mm. um, the day after and people are like morning and they don't know what you've just experienced the night before. Um, but yeah, after the funeral, it was difficult because, um, you're just, I don't know if it's a man thing, but it's like the mask is on and, um, I'm going back to work. Let's crack on. Let's, you know, everything's got to go back to normal now. And that was the hardest points. That was the most loneliest points. But I think just going back to the original question of, of, of the family, it was, we were very close throughout all of it, but I feel like none of us really spoke to each other as much as we could have because okay. one, we didn't know um, really what to say. And two, I personally, and I think it was the same for them, felt like I couldn't because I didn't want to burden them. Yeah. So like what was going on in my mind? I didn't want to go and tell my mum because then I'm just putting more onto her when she's trying to deal with the fact that she's just lost her husband. And the same with my brother. So we almost I wrote a chapter in the book. It was called We're All Battling We're All something like a lot I can't remember the chapter's name. It's something along the lines of um we're all battling we're all battling our own way or something along those lines. Mm. And how we've all experienced the same exact thing but we're all trying to deal with it on our own and very differently mm. because we don't want to burden every single person, every, everyone else. Um, and was that in hindsight and you, if you could go back there knowing what you know now, would, would you have changed anything about how you communicate with your family? hundred percent. I think, but again, it's, it, what I believe could have helped and maybe we, again, I'm saying this now, maybe at the time we would have just said no to it. Mm. It is some family support, like some, bereavement support as a family and also maybe speaking to a couple of other families that had loved mm. someone in that because yeah. you know literally afterwards you're offered bereavement counseling but i think suicide grief is very different to mm. normal grief um and not saying that it's any any harder but no, not at all but I, I understand what you're saying i feel like you just you feel very alone. You feel like you're the only one who's going through this, even though you know there's other people out there that have experienced loss by suicide. Um, but I wish maybe as a family, we did get some support as a group, of, as a family together, yeah. um, rather than me going and trying to get help, my mum trying to go and get help, etc. I think there's something to be said about a group environment with people who, are, who have gone through exactly the same thing. Like, absolutely. I think that's where a power is. You don't feel like you're doing it on your own. But you also get like this essential human connection through pain, which is something that humans have, which I always find just this wonderful, beautiful giving. Just being in that space can be incredibly healing. Mm -hmm. And what I just 
shift away from the story into a, into a question about masculinity. And, you know, you, you touched on that maybe, you know, that well, the facts speak for themselves, that women are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are more likely to carry it through. And do you think that men are still connected to a traditional role in masculinity, which might attribute to that kind of powerful, compelling urge to follow through on a destructive act? Great question. Hmm. I think, personally, I don't, I don't know whether it's that or whether it's the fact that as men we have lost that role in the first place. Mm. Like, I believe a lot of men, and, and you know, even if you look at the actual you know, rate of suicide in terms of the, the ages, it's normally, I think it's something along the lines of between 30 and 45, uh, at the highest risk. Um, and I don't know whether that's, as you say, the masculine trait of following through and, and doing it that way, or it's the fact of maybe they've lost touch of, of who they are as a man and lost touch of the role of, of a man, or maybe they've got the definition of what it takes for them to be a man very different because of maybe what they've seen or what they've tried to live up to. Mm. I believe, especially as men, we do numb a lot of the pain. You know, we, we, we don't, we don't express how we feel and we replace it with that short term pleasure of alcohol of, you know, drugs or something that's just going to numb the pain and hope that it goes away. Mm. And obviously as we sort of get older and get older, it continues to eat away at us and eat away at us and eat away at us. And then that can cause, you know, these dramatic suicides that we see. Mm. Um, I think that's the big question. That's the big question of what is, what is the role of a man today? Like, what is the definition of a man? I think it was very more black and white when my granddad was growing up. Yeah. And, you know, it was very much, you, you go to war, you go, yeah. the wife looks after the kids, the wife cooks, the wife cleans, etc., And you do all the DIY around the house. Whereas now, you know, you've got stuff. Exactly. Like and I failed as a man. That's that kind of thing. But I say that, but it's, it's true. You know, I could exactly. well be shamed. Exactly. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm 34 and my career isn't um, like my friends and my career is not where I thought it would be when I was growing up or, you know, I'm, I'm 34 and I'm a stay at home dad, but I don't want to be a stay at home dad. You know, there's, I think there's so many questions now of, of what it takes to be a man, but I think that all comes down to self-awareness. Like, mm. I feel like now we have to create our own definition of yes masculinity yeah. rather than trying to conform to like what we see on Instagram or what you know we, we hear as as the right way to do it. I think you're absolutely right, and that's a great way to answer the question. I think that men have lost touch with what it means to be a man, but we're we're kind of clouded by that question is that it has to mean something to be a man because we come from this this strong. Um, background of the protector the the provider you know the very strong man at the center of the family and that's certainly been challenged by the pure amount of options that there are out there now and the accessibility to those options of what a man can be so it's challenged that but with more options becomes more confusion so there's this kind of a wait what and it's, but you're actually right like i've always said be a man but by your own definition whatever you want to be do not allow yourself to be shamed by those who do not accept you for their perception that you're outside of some bullshit conformity. Because there is no conformity for being a man, for being a human being. We should be allowed to, to be how we want to be. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, 
It's so true. And I, I want to ask you a question if you don't mind, because this is something that's been sort of playing on my mind for a while is, is that there's that question that you just said of, of opportunity. Like, you know, I, I believe that today is the best time to do more of what you want to do because the amount of opportunity out there, you know, mm. the work that I do would never have been attainable in my granddad's era. Like there was no internet. There was no, this would never be attainable in, in my granddad's era. And I feel like there's so much opportunity. Like for me, I'm not single. I'm married. If I wanted a date, I can just download an app and put a nice photo on and start swiping and potentially get a date. Um, and I think, and even with social media, there's so much opportunity out there, but do you believe that sometimes that can cause more issues than some people? Because I did an interview with um, these travel influencers and I asked them, I said, where have you been that's been the most happiest place or the people there have seemed to be the happiest? And they said somewhere in the Philippines where they literally have nothing. Like yeah. all, all they have to do is make enough money to put food on the table and that's it and be with family and that's it. Yeah. And you know, that really made me think, are we just overcomplicating life? Are, is there too many options out there that makes it even more confusing? Mm. I, I've been thinking about this as well. And I, I think I have an answer, but I'll see how it lands with you. So if we have 60,000 thoughts per day, back when we were, you know, hunting elephants or woolly mammoths or living a very simple life, we didn't have answers to all of those 60,000 thoughts. We just simply had to let ponder them and go, oh, it's all right. But what's important here? I'll do what's important. But now with Google, with social media, we have the potential to answer all of those 60,000 questions which go through our head, which we're not meant to be able to answer. So we have a certainty to every one of these questions. So it removes that self-reliance and it removes that prioritizing that we used to have. So we're just overwhelmed. I think that there are a lot of opportunities, but, but I certainly suffer from massive amounts of overwhelm. Mm. massive amounts of comparison massive amounts of stress because i'm simply seeking answers to all these questions and getting a very firm reply which often says well you're not doing enough or you're not doing the right thing or you're not this person which just makes me feel like complete shit paul yeah yeah, yeah no i get it and uh like to, to back this up like i'm a metal worker and i take men through metal work retreats in norfolk and what's beautiful about that is because it's really simple you know, you get up, you eat by the river, you go into a metal workshop where you have to be really present because you're dealing with things that will take your face off, right? And you, and you remain centered on one clear vision of creating something. And that is it. Maybe you can hug a dog halfway through. You know, there's, there is no phone reception there, which is, oh, there's internet, you know, but I can just turn that off because I own the place. <laughs> yes, it's, I feel like we just over. <laughs> We overcomplicate a lot of everything now yeah. and overwhelm. You said it then. It's yeah, it's so true. Like this morning I was like, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this. Right. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I'm really like, have I got to do any of it? You know? And, and there was a, I was, I was chatting with a guy yesterday actually, and he, he's, he's a, he suffers with OCD. He's um, very successful. Um, we've become really good friends now. And he was talking, as I was saying before we hit record, I was talking to another person that has OCD, a good friend of mine too. And um, he said this, really good point about it was about OCD but it was also about we could all use it when we have these 60,000 thoughts a day and it was I'm going to probably butcher it but it was accept embrace and then control mm. so it's like every thought that we have you can't control it at first it's going to pop in everyone has it whether you're suffering with OCD or not the thought's going to pop in 
the first thing is to accept it, like accept that it's there. Second thing is to embrace it. Like don't push back on it. Don't have to, you don't always have to answer it. Mm-hmm. And then third thing is, is then you take control of it. You know, then you're in control of that thought. If you, um, you know, change your perspective of it, if you change your perception of it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, you know, that's perfect for overwhelm as well. You know, if yeah, you, that's incredibly, you know, let those thoughts come in. Everyone's going to have them, but it's mm-hmm. about, you know, accepting, embracing and then controlling. It's that kind of universal truth that I'm sure you know, the more we resist something, the more it just fucks us up on <laughs> so many levels. It is never, and it's so, it's so relative, you know, it's like put a plank of wood in a river and it will just overflow and go in all the places you don't want it to. And we're exactly the same with emotions. What, something I'd like to ask you is throughout your journey, what were the times when you experienced where you thought, I'm going to, if, if you have done, like, I'm going to put a block on this. I'm not going to let myself feel this. In what sense? Like, what did I maybe not deal with? Yeah. Like you say you, you encountered something that was really difficult and you chose not to feel the feelings that you desperately sort of wanted to. Yeah. I think, I think it was just the whole, just, just dad's suicide was, was the main one. It was literally, it happened. I remember crying. I remember punching my nan and granddad's kitchen because that's where we were when we heard about it. Um, and then I think it was that moment, like that moment after that, I think I cried, hugged my mum, hugged my brother. We all kind of like came together. And then I think it was that night. I think I honestly think it was that night where I said, that's the way I'm dealing with it is I'm not dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to resist it. Like this is, this is the only way that I'm going to be able to deal with this pain is, is, is to, to resist it. And I just put it in a bottle straight down just and, and buried it. And, and I managed to get by quite well for about a year or two. Um, but I, I do a lot of things like, you know, I'd go out with my mates and we'd be laughing and drinking in the pub and I'd walk home with my mate and we'd say bye and I'd go home and then I'd, I'd cry myself to sleep. So it was almost like, you know, that, that emotion was still coming at me, but it was coming at me at a time when I was on my own or yeah. when, I, when I didn't want to show weakness to anyone or show vulnerability to anyone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely been the biggest thing for me um, was, yeah, I just resist, resisted the grief. I just didn't want to deal with it. And it just tore me apart and ate away at me for a long, long time. It's interesting because all the way through this interview, you've, you've used the, the phrase eating away, you know, and tearing apart, which, you know, I'm a coach, so I'm trained to <laughs> look out for this, this kind of language. Um, and that, that would suggest that it was like a, a destructive losing of yourself but perpetuated by yourself is that accurate yeah 100 percent. like i did i just did everything in my own power to distract myself from it and also to just show everyone else that i was coping with it so things like you know i don't know if this is just a man thing i'm sure and women do it as well but just you know one right don't want to be at work. It was a great decision. I don't want to be at work. I'm going to start a business. But the reason why I'm going to start a business is because I want to make a lot of money. Like, and then, you know, a bit of money comes in, right? I'm going to go buy a, a nice car, you know? So I start driving a nice car at 19, use some of the inheritance money. It wasn't a lot, but it was on finance anyway. So literally <laughs> a month driving around in a nice car. Um, then it was like, right, business, let's make it look successful. So I'm going to go buy some nice clothes and tell everyone that it's really good. And every time we go out, I'm going to buy a nice bottle of vodka. And, 
And it was just that self-destruction of one distracting myself every minute. So yes, working, like I was working hard on the business, but it was just that distraction. And then if I wasn't working on the business, I'd be out, I would be drinking, I'd be just doing anything that I could to distract. Mm. And then as I say, just doing everything that I could to protect how I was feeling. Yeah. Protect this persona that, you know, I was dealing with it and everything's great. Like everything's going well. Yeah. And I think those, those are two self-destructive things that I believe a lot of people still do. Mm. You know, we, 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 we try and show an external version of ourselves that doesn't reflect how we feel internally. You know, and it's almost that internal, that external version of us is protecting you know, ourselves from yeah. how we feel internally. And, and then the, the distractions as well. And I look, at, I look at my dad, and again, I never know exactly why, um, but my dad was always, always, always busy. Like literally just, he did, he did like I say, some meditation and yoga and um, like he was a physiotherapist as well. So that was quite present. But, you know, he'd be running, he'd be, you know, working, he'd be, you know, doing something, signing up to something else. And he's always, always, always trying to keep his mind active. Mm. I believe a lot of that was maybe as well, you know, him running away from something that, you know, we'll never know. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. It's that kind of that projected fields of interaction which we put out which we allow people to buy into it's like mm. kind of put it it's like if you imagine it's kind of like a couple of meters away from our vulnerable selves and it's like this is where i'll let you interact this is where i am they're like oh paul yeah he's doing well he's got a nice guy seen that seen what he's wearing nice fog bit you know so they, they buy into that so you're just not at risk the only person who's at risk to you is is you and no one's going to question me and yeah. no one's Hey, Paul, like, are, you, are you dealing with your dad's suicide? Yeah. Especially, you know, 21, 22, 23, you know, 24. It's, it's probably not going to be a question that one of my mates or anyone was going to ask. Because to them, I mean, even, even family and stuff, even to them, it, you know, everything looked okay. And, and again, there's a lot of stories and a lot, I've had a lot of people say that, you know, people that they've lost to suicide, they'll do something like that. You yeah. know, everything seems to be okay before they end their life. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I did an interview with Rory O'Connor. He um, heads up suicide research at Glasgow University. And um, I remember I did an interview with him and sort of said, I've been trying to answer why. And I believe that I've maybe got the, some of the answers. Um, and also accepting the fact that I'll never know exactly why. Mm -hmm. But from a research point of view, you know, tell us you know, why someone takes their own life. And he said, one, um, everyone feels like they're, they feel like they're a burden to everyone else. So one of the biggest questions for me was, does my dad not love me? Like, does my dad not love me enough to, to stay living? And, you know, he explained when you're in that situation, you do feel like you're a burden to everyone. And by you ending your life, you're doing them, you know, a favor, you're, 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 you're making their life better. So he spoke about tunnel vision. So just complete tunnel vision, lack of meaning. You've only got the one question that you answer every single day. Like, do I continue to fight or do I just give in and take my own life? Mm. Um, and free, the, the other thing that he said that was really interesting was social perfectionism. Mm. And social perfectionism, which is very much of what I was explaining, where you, you know, try and live and conform to this perfect lifestyle. Um, to again, again, probably use it as a protection of, of how you're feeling inside. And I think, again, my dad did that very well. Um, for a long, long time, and it's you know it works. It's people don't question it, you know. They, they yeah. take it. It's uh, it's. I think it's quite common, although the tides are shifting now, uh, for people not to inquire 
a little bit deeper for whatever reason. I find most of the people I work with, it's because they're a little bit afraid that they won't be able to deal with, you know, someone comes out with something like I'm really struggling, but really they're, they're kind of missing the point because it's not about them. It's about the other person. It's like, all you have to do is listen and allow them the space. This is it. And this is like, this is one thing that I'm trying to do, especially within, within the workplace, within schools as well. It's, it's just that it's, it's again, this, this is only from, from personal experience because Again, I don't wish that I knew this back then. I do because I, I believe my dad could still be alive. But I think, you know, I probably would never be educated on it if, if that experience didn't happen to me. Um, but what you've just said then is so important. You know, I hear it, in, especially in workplaces every single day where a manager will avoid someone because they don't feel it's their territory. They don't feel like they're the therapist that can help them. So they, they avoid it. Um, and that avoidance is, is never going to help anyone. And the second thing I think which is so important that we need to change is, is the manager or anyone, anyone, whether it's a friend, family member, having the ability, not the ability, but knowing that they have um, the options that they can give them. Like, I feel like a lot of people, as you said, if the manager goes into someone and says, like, I've noticed there's some been, you know, I've noticed that something's been wrong over the last week. Is there anything you want to tell me? In the back of their mind, as you say, you're always thinking about yourself. They're like, oh, how am I going to deal with something if they say they're thinking about taking their own life? Um, and I believe we need to get to a point where if I ask you that question, everyone knows this is what we need to do. Mm. The options that this person's got. Mm. You know, I think it's, you know, if, if someone's having a, <laughs> it's a terrible example, if someone's having a heart attack, like I'd panic. I'd also probably know that by ringing 999 or, you know, getting other people to support me that I could probably, you know, get that person to the right place. And that's an immediate thought process as well. So if we had the immediate thought process of like, this person needs a support network, they need to be put in touch with someone who can help them, all of this stuff, like that kind of immediate knee-jerk reaction to there's danger here, mm -hmm. I need to help this person, I can help. Yeah. That'd yeah. be amazing. That'd be exactly. so good. It's that trust, isn't it? It's like, you know, looking back at my dad's experience, I, we just never knew, we, we, hadn't, I had, we had no idea what to do anymore. Mm. Like every time we, we, we got him in an ambulance, um, you know, they tried, they tried sending him home, um, you know, and we'd have to fight back and say, you know, he's, he's, he's not right, you know. Um, he's just spent a couple of months in a mental health unit and, you know, he needs to go back, but... He had to see one person, the next person, the next person, wait for transport, come to the mental health unit, then got released a couple of days after. And then you'd be doing the same thing again, like the week after. And, mm. and what I see as well, there's not a lot of difference like 10 years later. And, and this is the, the issue. We need to have, as you say, an immediate reaction of if you're, if you're telling me that you're struggling, I know what I need to do yeah. because I wouldn't avoid the conversation. I'd have a conversation with, with, with you. Um, and this yeah. branches out into so many different avenues of how do we implement sustainable well-being within the workshop, uh, work, uh, workplace, mm. sustainable well-being approaches in education so that they're not a band-aid. They don't just come in and cover over because that does nothing. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's got to be unique, bespoke, because people are complex and they need that very specific report uh not report what am i saying when i get passionate about things my vo my words just go way out the window just to that, that, that very specialist approach and support there we go yeah yeah 100 and yeah i think 
this is the issue that I have with workplaces is, is, you know, I, I'll go in or anyone will go in and they'll do a one hour lunch and learn. And, you know, yeah, it's great. But is that one hour lunch and learn going to completely change the work environment? You know, is it going to reduce the stigma in the workplace? Is it going to help that person that's suffering in silence, be able to go to their manager, be able to go to HR and ask for help? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe me standing up there, sharing my story, being vulnerable, giving them, you know, some advice from personal experience may cause them to go and seek that help. But I, I personally believe, as you say, it's, it's not that one size fits all approach. It's, you know, we have to be very individual with it. And it, complete culture change it's a complete environment change um it's not just a tick box of we've had paul come in and do a one hour lunch and learn it's more of we've had paul come in he's done a one hour lunch and learn. we've had this person come in we've had a consultant come in who's changing the work environment we've got managers who are completely trained on it now and they know exactly what they're doing you know it's it's stigma in the workplace they know they can come to hr and these are the support options they've got they're not going to be judged if they come and say that they're suffering with depression and i think that is where we need to get to um rather than compassionate leadership start with the managers so that they are educated you know primarily on how to listen how to recognize how to support and then have available to them a program which facilitates what their clients what their employees or who what everyone needs and it is this kind of bespoke and i believe that kind of i think it was this, this statistic is, is way off, but it will give you an idea. Like Royal Mail uh, invested something like 400000 into a three-month program. And they were worried about the ROI on what they'd get back. And they got back something like about four or five million plus for work days being not missed. You know, like those numbers are completely off. I can put the actual numbers in the show notes. But it's that, it's that kind of thing. It's that investment that was sustainable. Because I think a lot of companies are kind of like, well, if, if we get something sustainable in, we're, we're going to lose money. But it, it's actually the opposite. You want to make your employees feel safe, secured, like they enjoy work. And it's that community, Paul, being part of a community, being part of something meaningful that they can share. Yeah, and I think it's that you just hit the nail on the head in the fact of, it's going to make them more money. It's going to make yeah. them more. It's going to make staff more productive. It's going to make staff happier. It's going to improve job retention. Like if I'm happy in my work, I'm not going to go and find yeah. money or, or whatever. I'll probably chase more money, but I'm not going to find a new job. Um, and I think what the issue is 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 exactly that. It's it's a lot of CEOs, HRs, whoever it is, you know, the board. It's all short term. Like we need to proving, you know in this year that we've made a profit or in this year, how much we've spent and how much we've made. I think companies now, especially now, because it's all going to change massively. um, They need to start maybe taking a bit of a hit when it comes to spending some money um, in mental wellbeing within the workplace, because I I honestly hundred percent believe that that will pay off long-term, that it's it's a shift from this short-term mindset of this is going to help. And like you say, put a plaster over it to a more long-term sustainable change that will potentially make you more money in the process. It will. That's it. Because imagine if your workers really wanted to come into work, you know, if they knew they could get support, if they felt like they were part of a family, which is a pretty alien word in corporate. I'm just going to be quite honest, like family. No, No, no community, no, but that would be amazing. And it's almost, 
I, I've come across a lot of people going, you're very naive. I'm like, no, fuck you, am I naive? <laughs> That's what needs to happen. You're naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just, you know, it's one of those things that, I, again, as we were saying, I believe we'll look back on this in, I don't know, say, say 50 years. And people will just be like, what were they doing? Like, what were they doing back then? Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, you're not going to be able to persuade everyone. And I accept that. And I know that I'll never be able to persuade everyone. But I think, you know, take a short term hit, you know, really prioritize that. Like, what's the alternative? You know, the it's going to be that you could potentially lose staff to suicide. Statistics prove that, you know, I always worded that every employee, every male employee under 45, the biggest risk of their life is suicide. Yeah. Every employee between 18 and 25, the biggest risk of their life is suicide. Mm. Like, you know, we need to start doing something to try and, you know, deal with that because they're at high risk of taking their life and you need to be able to support that. Well, there's a responsibility there and it's not just for your company. It's actually a global responsibility and a generational responsibility as well. I know we, we kind of went off on a tangent and I know that we're, we're coming towards the end, but I wanted to just jump, jump right back to when you were a child and ask you, was there any kind of, I mean, could there have been any changes in the way that you were educated or supported in schools, which could have helped you cope with your father's suicide better, more healthily? Was there any kind of support? And it's kind of the same thing with corporate. Are there changes that need to be made in the education system to help our kids? 100%. Like school for me was, was fun. I loved school. Um, I was quite academic, um, but I prefer I prefer playing football. I was, I remember I always say I was I was, I was in parents' evening. My mum, my dad will be brought in, and you know Paul's doing really well at sport. You know he's excelling at football and da da da. He's got a D in geography, you know. So we need to start working on his geography. And now I, I like geography though. I look at that and I just think, just why don't you let me play football more? I could now and about to win the league. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, just, it's that, well, you have to be balanced, you know. You can't just be good at one thing. You've got to be very balanced. Um, but school, yeah, I remember just, I remember when dad died, it was literally, I wish I, wish I got taught how to deal with it. Mm. Taught how to deal with it. But there was literally no education on how to deal with grief, like how to deal with even like the finances, the financial side of it. Like just, you know, as we say, like, you know, when I started to make a bit of money with the business, I just, I just, bunked it all and just literally spent it all because again I'm living that lifestyle that is protecting how I'm feeling um so like just financial intelligence you know emotional intelligence mm. you know dealing with worry dealing with stress being able to you know deal with what was going on in my mind a little bit better than than um I did um I don't think I had any of that at school mm. I believe I learned a lot lot more um from 19 to 29 so the last 10 years, I believe I've learned a lot more from, from figuring things out myself and speaking to other people outside of school than I did at, at school. Mm. It's like that resilience, that self-exploration, which isn't encouraged in school because we're pretty much told to do what other people say. And when we present a strength, it's like, yeah, this is good, but we need to balance it out. And it's like, well, what are you really good at? What do you feel really good doing? Maybe you concentrate on this. You yeah. Know? And adverse and also I think teaching that adversity is gonna come. You're not gonna avoid it. And I think parents have a responsibility. I'm not a parent myself, so I'm very sorry for any parents listening. But I do think parents have a responsibility to let their child know that adversity is gonna happen, but they are gonna be okay through it. Because there was this someone did a, a TED 
a TED talk and he said, you know, if you tell a child over and over again that they're literally the cat's pajamas, then when they hit adversity, they're going to have nothing to fall back on. Mm-hmm. You know, they are going to fail and they're going to interpret adversity, challenge and failure as a bad thing and they're going to avoid it. And then they'll build up a narcissistic idea of themselves based on what they believe they are. But I think that's the opposite of what we want, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great thing. And I remember, to Anne, the lady who helped me massively, I remember, so I've got two, two boys, Freddie's my stepson, he's, he's 10 in July, I met him when he was, Freddie's um, a great name, Freddie's a great name, and, <laughs> listen, he, I met him when he was two, so I was in his, you know, quite early, and, um, and we've got Teddy, so we've got Freddie and Teddy, Freddie and Teddy, oh mate, that's awesome, don't, don't do it, I'm 29 and I'm getting them mixed up already, and he's two, um, but um, what was I going here? So, and so I remember, so Freddie was about five and, you know, obviously I was, you know, in his life and becoming like, you know, stepdad and really kind of stepping into the role at that point. And I remember saying to her, like, I feel like I'm not a good, a good parent because not a good parent, but you know, I wanted to be that perfect parent. Mm. Uh, like, what do we, what do I read to him? Like, what do I say to him to boost his self-esteem and all of this and, and protect him? And I remember her saying to me, like, there's no perfect parent. And she said probably the same as what you've just said is that I could tell him that he was, he's the best, you know, he's the best, he's the best, he's the best. And then he goes to school or something happens that shows him that he's not the best. And how's he going to be able to deal with that when, you know, he's conditioned in that way. Mm. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. Um, I think she just said, you have to just do your best, yeah. do your best. That's all you can do. You can't control the outcome of anyone else's life. Mm. Um, but yeah, but yeah. We'll see, but uh, yeah, I think I think just going back to the school system just quickly. Like we're 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 big um, believers in 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 homeschooling. To be honest, um, okay, yeah, um, because because I, I you know I want to travel more, and I think you know we can experience a lot from from traveling, and I think you know homeschooling in a way allows you to still do the core subjects and still learn and 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 um, but, but maybe as well just learn the subjects that you want to learn. You know, it's just. For me, I feel, I feel like we learn a lot at school, but how much do we actually utilize in, in adult life? Very little. <clears throat> or at least I have. I mean, I learned Latin, for Christ's sake. Like, I have <laughs> never used Latin ever in my entire life. <laughs> Occasionally many, to wow girls. Do you think you, did, you, you spent learning Latin? Like, if you put it together, how many hours do you reckon? Oh, oh crikey. Like, over 500. You know, it was nailed into me. 500 less, uh, 500 hours, something like, I don't know. And it did nothing. It was a traumatizing experience from <laughs> one beginning until right the end. If I could wipe that bit from my life, my fucking God, would I? Fuck you, Latin. You're great. <laughs> right now, yeah, yeah. We, we, we are coming towards the end. So I want to, could you share some actionable steps for our listeners? Like we we're talking to, the, the, the younger demographic of men going up to the older demographic of men who have experienced a traumatic moment where their parents present themselves as, you know, as fallible, as, as breakable, and they're going through the shit. Like, what are the steps and the suggestions that you can give to them? I feel like just, just we have to use that to our advantage. Like, we can't change what's happening, but we can use that you, you mentioned adversity. We can use that adversity as strength. Like for me, the change, the turning point was when I, when I changed from that victim mindset into actually, you know, I'm very grateful 
you know, so from victim mindset to, to gratitude. Mm. So using that adversity as a way of, okay, let's move forward. Let's try and learn from this. Now it's, it's not as easy as that. Like that sounds a lot more straightforward, but it was really like, I spent the first two, three years of like, why has this happened to me? You know, I'm never going to get married without my dad being there. I'm never going to have kids, all of this kind of negative self-talk. And then, you know, and the lady helped me, she really changed my perspective on it and said, you know, you're very lucky that, you know, you had that dad in your life for 18 years and, mm. you know, being grateful for the experiences that I had with him when other children don't have those experiences. And, um, so I believe if, if you are sort of struggling is, is, is don't, don't use that adversity as a negative, just try and use that adversity as a strength, um, and push forward from it. Um, and also as well, you, you talk a lot about it, but I think vulnerability just, you know, vulnerability is, is powerful. Like mm. I'm, and we were having this conversation yesterday, actually. So there's three of us there, you know, all kind of guys. And um, we were talking about the new alpha male. Mm. We were all saying that the new alpha male is someone who's confident, someone who is a protector of their family, someone who is very driven in what they want to achieve, but someone who's extremely vulnerable as well. And they can accept that vulnerability. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. But you're okay to talk about the shit that you've been through and, and how you feel and all of that. But you're also very driven and you know what you want to achieve. And, you know, you can get what you want in the fact of, you know, the life that you want to live and that freedom attached to it as well. It's like um, extreme ownership of oneself. Yeah, that vulnerability is, is, is a new addition to what the alpha male used to be. Fucking um, man, absolutely. I think, I think it's great. Like just, I think it's, it's such a, such a freedom. Like I remember just how trapped I was in my own mind when I was just not wanting to talk about it. Mm. And I, I've shared it before. And it's the fact that, you know, suffering with mental health is tiring. Mm. But suffering with mental health and pretending that you're not suffering with mental health is exhausting. Oh, fuck <laughs> literally, no. just literally. Oh, I can't show anyone this as well. Yeah. So those two things, adversity and, and vulnerability, like use them as, as a, a way to move forward um, rather than letting them take over. Absolutely. And I just wanted to add on to that. Like, I think we always fear what it will be like to let someone else know, but that fear, it never measures up to the release and the relief that you feel. That fear is just there to keep us in a place that's safe, but it's not, it's not safe, it's, it's destructive. So I'd say, you know, just step beyond it because it's not as bad, it is never as bad as we imagine it to be. In fact, it's absolutely fucking beautiful. Yeah, that's great, man. And Paul, I'm gonna hand the show over to you. So Paul's gonna leave you with a. I did prep him before this. I've got in trouble with my other guests where I just dropped it on them. They're like, "Cheers, Henry. Thanks for that. Yeah, great." Uh, so Paul, could you could you leave us with uh, just just a message that's purely from you to all the guys and girls listening? I think you know. Moving on from what I said, the, 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 there's one quote that really helped me, and it's um, a guy called Dr. Wayne Dyer, mm. uh, and you know. He died recently as well, but he, I remember reading some of his books early on and, you know, very spiritual and a 22 year old Essex boy reading a book on spirituality was never going to go down well with a mate, but it was just, I don't know, I was just drawn to it at that time. And um, he's, he's some, a lot of his books were great, but there's one quote that just get, got me every time and it's so simple, but it's so powerful. And it's when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. 
and like that whole um, shift in perspective. I believe when we're going through any form of adversity, there's two powerful tools to use. <clears throat> the first one is gratitude. So because when we're going through something painful, we're always thinking about the negatives, but actually looking at what we're grateful for can help. That's a massive, massive change. And then two perspective, like knowing what we're going through right now is terrible. When we do put it maybe into the bigger picture, we put it into perspective, it could probably be a lot worse. And it maybe has been a lot worse in the past as well. And we've overcome that as well. So I think in terms of the message that I want to leave is it, it's that it's whatever you're going through right now, understand that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change and, um, you know, try and put it into perspective and know that you can get through whatever life throws at you. So there we go. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview and that episode. A huge thanks to Henry. Hopefully you enjoyed that music as well. I'm sorry that I had to fade that out. It was bringing me back to my clubbing days. Um, but I just wanted to kind of say thank you for listening all the way through. Please let me know your feedback. Drop me a message on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for pmcgregor.com or Paul McGregor. You can also drop me an email at paul at pmcgregor.com. And then finally as well, if you found any value in this episode or any of the work that I've done recently, please, please, please leave a rating and a review, especially on iTunes. It really helps with the awareness and the exposure of these podcast episodes. And it gets the story out there. It gets mental out there and hopefully we can continue to break down that stigma let me know if you've done that take a screenshot send it to me and i'll pop i'll tell you what i'll pop a free copy of the book in the post as long as you're in the uk if not you're gonna have to pay for shipping and handling it and i'll do the rest guys have a great day and i'll speak soon